welcome to episode 12 of the Farm One podcast. My name is Ina Tubaleha. I'm the chief of staff. And today we have Rob Lang, our CEO and founder. Hello there. How you doing? Awesome. Thanks. And Michael Chin, our vice president of corporate development. Hi, everyone. Hope you're all doing well. How was how was both of your weekends? I had a good weekend. I had I kind of came off, you know, last week I was really sluggish from New Year's. And so I did a, most of the week I drank smoothies, which sounds like a real chore, but it's actually um, partly recipe um, development for some things that we're working on. So it was like a mixture of work and play. But um, yeah, I drank a lot of smoothies last week. So I kind of uh, was without salt, I guess, and oil and sugar for like, a lot of people talk about like SOS free. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but like, um, yes, yeah, so it was kind of like an SOS free week, but then I kind of pounded into the weekend and we went to superiority burger, uh, in the East village, which, um, I don't know if any of our listeners will know them, but they, um, they were great. Uh, so they, it's sort of uh, a guy who used to be at Del Posto, a pastry chef, actually, Brooks Headley, uh, who left and sort of started this kind of punk-ish, skate-ish, um, vegan burger store. It's not just vegan, they were vegetarian as well. Um, and it was the kind of place where they would like literally just post the day special on Instagram and then you could go down there and there'd be like three out of seven things left on the menu uh, because they'd run out of the rest, uh, but always really good. Uh, but what we didn't realize was it was actually the last day of them being open for several months. They've had to close for some reason. It wasn't really clear why. Um, and hopefully they're coming back in short order. But uh, so there was a massive line. So, you know, Gabby and I were waiting in the cold. I think it was more than an hour. You can't tell really, can you, when you're standing on the street just waiting. Uh, but we had that and that was great, but it's kind of a bit of a salt bomb. And then I don't know why, but we had another burger in the evening, like an impossible burger or something like that. And uh, I think we were both craving a burger twice. Um, so yeah, that was kind of uh, a lot. And then, uh, um, but apart from that, you know, good weekend. And I mean, it was good, but like, I felt very salty, you know, so I had to like do loads. Of, I don't know. Do you, do you guys get this when you haven't had salt or like, haven't really been eating out that much and then you go and eat out and then the quantity of salt and sugar and oil and stuff is like a lot and your body can sort of feel it. You know, I don't know if you experienced the same thing. I, I get the same way. So on Friday, I had made margaritas and chips and salsa. And so that was just heavy salt. Like I even yeah. rammed the glass of the margarita with salt. And then Saturday morning, I'm sure that the alcohol had something to do with this also. A little but bit, my yeah. were swollen. <laughs> so I definitely <laughs> felt the salt content in my body. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel it, Michael? Yeah. It's funny because I was just um, kind of joking about it because uh, I didn't. I didn't used to, um, but it wasn't until the last few years um, that that I've felt the effects of that. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, when you're younger too, right? You'd, you, you, what's a hangover? You'd bounce back right yeah. away. And then all yeah. of a sudden at some stage in your life, you're just like, uh, what did I eat last night? What happened? <laughs> Yeah, and I, I mean, I do also think it, for me, I especially notice it if I haven't had any salt for a while, and then I go and I eat something relatively salty, and it really just throws me for a loop now. And I, I mean, obviously, it doesn't happen that often, but I really notice it. So, yeah, and it's something that 
I don't know if I've ever read an article or anyone talking about it in the media. So I've always kind of wondered if it's just a Rob thing, but clearly not. <laughs> so that's good. Yeah. What about you, Michael? Did you have any exciting food adventures? Not really. It was, uh, you know, the, the pandemic's sort of been a lot about um, cooking and, and making sort of large pots of things and, and, and just yeah. living off of leftovers. So this weekend was a lot of leftovers uh, from from earlier in the week and uh, but, you know, pretty chilled out otherwise, pretty uh, very low key. We're, uh, you know, it was, we've eaten out a couple of times. Well, when I say eaten out, it's uh, getting takeout. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're trying to support sort of some of the, the local restaurants that we used to eat at. Uh, and uh, but it's been a little bit we did that over new years and um you know maybe we'll do it this weekend but yeah it was pretty low-key it was perfect in that respect cool and Ina, any other food adventures apart from your margaritas your salty margaritas <laughs> um i actually took a trip to rossum treats um yesterday they're in the bowery nolita area um they do a lot of desserts I love, I'm a definitely a dessert person. My sweet tooth ever since I was a kid has been just extreme. And so the desserts that they have are made from all plant-based ingredients and they're all raw and it was delicious. The pumpkin yeah. latte was my de definitely my favorite. Michael, you shared that you had the black sesame pie. I had that one too. That one was really good. Yeah, it was yeah. fantastic. Did you, did you try an ice cream sandwich? No, I did. it was oh. just way too cold for me to even think about <laughs> carrying an ice cream sandwich, although it probably would have made it the whole trip home. So it, yeah. it's that time of the year where ice cream is not really my go-to. No, I get you. I get you. They were handing out ice cream at Superiority Burger as well, but we couldn't bring ourselves to do it because I think our core body temperature was like down below <laughs> 30 or something anyway. But yeah, the ice cream sandwiches at Rosam are also great. And um, they're on Orchard Street. I think Orchard Grocer is also an Orchard Street. That would make sense, mm -hmm. wouldn't it? And then they do um, these great like vegan sandwiches and stuff like a like a vegan version of a Reuben or like a Cubano, I think they do. I don't know. Um, but yeah, they're great too. So a good little street um, for that kind of thing. Great. Well, what's happening today, Ina? What are we doing? Um, today we're going to be talking a lot about food trends and what we're going to see in this year, in 2021. There have been a couple of reports that have been released by Forbes, New York Times, and Carbonate uh, that we're going to share in the links below. And they talk a little bit about some of the trends that are going to shape the way that we consume food for the, the year to come. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk through some that we find interesting and that are going to shape the way that we think about our food also from farm one. Uh, so we're actually going to kick off with this trend from the Forbes article, which is about flavor fatigue. So what this talks a lot about is the idea of complex flavors. You know, it's already an emotionally bearing, you, you know, we've been in emotionally bearing time for a, a while, 2020 was definitely difficult and you know it's gonna continue on for the next year. And what is our capacity to experience complex flavors? And are we gonna start thinking about simplicity and in ingredients again? Michael or Rob, do you wanna share a little bit about your thoughts and on what you think about this? I have a lot of complex emotions about this. I mean, I because, <laughs> you know, personally, 
during lockdown. I mean, and then the definition of quarantine and lockdown is, of course, different for everybody across the country and across the world. But, you know, certainly the experience for us was, of course, you know, no dining out. And I, yeah, I would agree there's a certain uh, element of like not sort of feeling like it's time to be adventurous, but at the same time, complete boredom as well. And, you know, we, we don't order takeout that often, but probably once a week or so. And then we order from pretty much a rotating list of like five different places that are good, but, you know, running out of um, kind of options there. And I guess, yeah, it's this thing of like, you know, what are the things, what are the things that push you to try new things, right? It's normally like meeting friends or someone introducing you to something or like, you know, being feeling carefree feeling abundant right feeling that it's okay to make a mistake or something then it's like all right well yeah i'll pop into this new taco place if it doesn't happen to be great like whatever i'm still having a good time with my friends i'm still you know maybe um just socializing whereas that's gone now right so the the when food arrives either you've made it in your kitchen or it, it arrives at takeout like it's sort of like it better be good because that is like the highlight of your day that you're sort of looking for and if it's disappointing then oh shit i've got quarantine and i've got bad food this is terrible right so i can sort of see why people might reach for the pringles in that situation and so this flavor fatigue idea sort of makes sense in that respect but i i think there's something a little bit worrying about it as well because i think that you know if you look sort of somewhat historically at the US and, um, you know, a lot of sort of traditional kind of white people, American foods, they tend to be sort of quite bland, you know, Western European or Eastern European foods that are, you know, lots of sort of corn and potatoes and not a lot of like spices and, and this kind of thing. And and so the, the the idea of something having a challenging flavor often is really closely associated with it being like a foreign food from a foreign country. And, you know, even now you'll see in a sitcom plot or something, someone might eat some food from uh, Vietnam or something, and then they have a stomach upset because the food is too spicy or something. And it's just this like trope, right? It's this thing that like, oh, okay, yeah, if you're American, you might not be able to handle like, you know, curry or something like that. And and there, I think that there's some bad, really bad like vibes about that. Like it's not, it, it's sort of this idea that, oh yeah, everything else out there is too difficult. And so that's what I really don't like about it, I guess. That's why sort of really mixed feelings about it. I can see how people want to reach for comfort food, but I really, it's really sad if that means that oh all of the sort of progress that we've made around you know cultural trying food from different cultures introducing diversity into people's diets introducing new flavors and new techniques if that's like rolling back somehow that's really it's really really sad so that that's my sort of feeling about flavor fatigue but i may be overthinking it too much and certainly i'm also someone who i i like um um this a chocolate bar company called uh, Dick Taylor Craft Chocolate. They happen to be based in San Francisco or the Bay Area. Um, and so they're not exactly convenient, but um, sometimes I order chocolate from them. And that is like my sort of, you know, comfort food baseline where I'm like, I know what I'm going to get. I know it's always going to be really, really good. Um, I know that they deliver in like two days or something like that. And so it's like a very reliable thing. Um, 
but so I I have some sympathy there. But but yeah, mixed mixed feelings. I don't know, Michael. Are you do you do you sympathize with some of my fears about it, or am I just overthinking this? I do, I do, and I think if you kind of look at what they're trying to do here in this article. It feels like they're trying to do a few different things, right? So, you know, the premise of, of this point in the article is that it's based off of research published in the Journal of Consumer Psychology, which, you know, if you looked at that as uh, if, if you looked at comfort food, familiarity, um, you know, and their point is that cognitive depletion reduces consumer enjoyment of complex flavored foods, but not simple flavored foods. It's like, okay, on the one level, you can kind of understand that and you can kind of understand familiarity, you know, comfort in the familiar, uh, comfort in, you know, comfort foods, always these like really heavy carb, really heavy sort of starchy foods, which also has a physiological effect on your body, right? It essentially right. gives you this- Slows you down. <laughs> slows you down, gives you the spike of, 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 of carbs that your body needs to break down, you get an insulin response and the whole thing, um, you know, and it, and it makes you feel like, oh, I feel satiated, I feel good. So I think that there's maybe a couple of different things there that's happening. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I get what you're saying, Rob. And the only thing that I can really reflect on is that um, and New Year's, we we had dinner at the uh, place that we've been having dinner for, for quite a few years now, sort of a special treat. It's a sushi place in, in Washington, D.C. It's called Sushi Taro. They're fabulous. They're wonderful. Um, and they don't do the regular sort of, you know, American sushi type. They do the traditional kaiseki. And um, so we ordered this osechi box, which is this uh, traditional Japanese New Year um, box. And, you know, it's far from from simple or, or, or one note flavors, right? It's about as complex as it can get. It's like one black bean and you're just like, wow, what is this? This is crazy. It's been soaked in this syrup and all of that type of thing. What I found while I was eating that was excitement. It, it was almost like this rush of joy because I, I it's almost like I felt the complete opposite of it where, you know, let's call it you know, six days out of the week, you're eating sort of your comfort food, you're going, you know, with the familiar. And of course, there are some restrictions nowadays with the pandemic and, and partly creativity that we have and the energy that you have to try to make a special meal. But what I found as I was eating this was it reignited the joy I have for food. I mean, I enjoy eating. I, I love food. I love different flavors. You know, I Grew up in Singapore. It's very multicultural. And, um, you know, from a very young age, the way my brain was formed, my relationship with food was around all very dynamic and interesting flavors. And what I found when I was eating that meal was like I would take a bite and, you know, this doesn't happen very often in, in real life for me. But you're sitting back and as you're eating this, you're experiencing all of these flavors. And I felt nothing but joy. Um, it, it, it was really energizing for me to almost be like, maybe, you know, there is some brightness at the, you know, through all of this. So I don't know. I mean, that was my experience. But that said, I also cracked into a whole tube of Pringles this weekend, and that felt great. <laughs> the cheddar cheese flavor seems to hit the note for me. But. You got to have the contrast, I guess. You know, you got to have this high end, amazing, you know, intricate experience. And then yeah. the only way that that becomes special is by comparing it with the Pringles, I guess. 
I know. What do you think? I, you know, I think that there's such a fine line between like emotionally eating and the emotions you feel eating. And there's like emotionally eating is being motivated to eat by your emotions rather than emotions being a response to what you're eating. So, you know, being a ballet dancer for 15 years, I had a poor relationship with food growing up. And I associated a lot of negative emotions with food. Hmm. And I did a lot of work to understand that you can have an emotional response from food, but you shouldn't be motivated by those emotions to choose or dictate what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat. And so what I'm like having a little bit of trouble understanding in this, in this trend or in this statistic is, is this coming from a place of emotionally eating or the emotional response to eating it's not really clear for me yeah i mean we're all sort of you know there's before the meal and after isn't there and i guess one of my like comfort foods i guess is japanese curry like after (laughs) having lived in japan and it being a sort of you know most most of the time you get the curry mix out of the box you know, you don't have to. I've made it from scratch a few times, but out of the box is sort of normally better, I guess. And so um, for me, it's like a very, it is comforting, you know? And so, but I don't, is that driven by my need for comfort? I guess. I don't, I don't feel badly about that though. I don't know. I might stop there before I go into a huge <laughs> introspective, you know, spiel. But yeah, I know what you mean. It's, it is a mixture. It's like we need food to sort of do certain things for us. But, you know, is that is that weakness? You know, maybe not. Right. And like for me, like I associate flavors and like complex flavors with nourishment mm-hmm. because those kinds of like those I translate those flavors in my brain as like this is like my way of nourishing myself, you know, and I can't nourish myself with the same flavor all week. <laughs> well, that's what, but that, this is what happens, you know, when I, I've, I've done this a few times where I just drink smoothies, right. For a few days. And I did it for five days last week. And they're not, they're not just juice, they're smoothies. So they have like a lot of stuff in them. You know, normally if I'm doing one, that's like, pure nutrition no flavor it'll have like chickpeas in it i did i did one last week which was like chickpeas zucchini um blueberries i think and then red red cabbage so like wasn't really very sweet or anything it's just and after you've had those for a few days it's really weird what happens psychologically to you because food no longer becomes of any interest in terms of like excitement you know, it's like purely nutrition, but also you're sort of feeling amazing in your body, you know, like, because you've had sort of pure food for several days, but it's like, it's, it's almost like you, you kind of get bored in the evening or whatever. Cause normally you spend, I don't know about you, but I spend like at least an hour getting ready, cooking, whatever. And then, and then eating is probably another hour. Right. And then thinking how good you feel after you've eaten it is another hour. So you've got three hours of the day that are purely spent around this food. Whereas with the smoothie, it's kind of like over in 20 minutes, you know, and you're done. It's, it's really strange what it does to you because you, you, on the one hand you think, okay, I've got lots of time now to think about other stuff. And on the other hand, you think this sucks and I don't like it. You know. So, <laughs> anyway, anyway, it's my take. 
I don't know if we're, this is, we're fatiguing this topic, maybe. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll head on to the, to the next trend that we're noticing. So the Forbes article also shared that sustainability is going to be a table stake for a lot of the way that we think about food and how we consume food. We've seen this in the trends towards alternative proteins and plant-based diets. And it's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of people's thinking around food packaging, especially with food delivery um, and how we how we shop for food just on a daily basis. Rob or Michael, do you have any any thoughts or things that you want to share about this statistic or this trend? Michael, you go first. Well, I think the interesting part of this is that for a while, sustainability, I think at, at least for most consumers, um, I shouldn't say most, many consumers at a surface level was about, you know, maybe some packaging, maybe some, uh, you know, different habits uh, that, that you have uh, using reusable bags at the supermarket as opposed to, you know, plastic or the paper bags that they have. What I find interesting about this trend is it's taking sustainability to a much deeper level, a much more sort of holistic level throughout the system. So, you know, Jess on the team talks about this a lot. What's the overall impact um, from, from end to end of sustainability? So this idea of more plant-based um, proteins and, and others, I think is really interesting. I think that's one that is going to break, seems to be breaking through. We've talked about it a lot on this podcast and we see it, you know, almost every week in the, in the, in the industry, but, you know, everything from uh, the plant-based proteins and meats and, and everything else, but it also feels like there's kind of a cultural shift that's starting to happen in all of these industries, whether it's food, fashion, and others, where you're being a lot more uh, conscious about it. Maybe that's kind of the, a reflection of where we had been over the last few decades to, you know, people are starting to evolve and mature maybe in their, in their way of thinking about um, sustainability. Um, you know, on the fashion end, you know, maybe there's a move or a trend away from kind of fast disposable fashion of the H&M type to, you know, I'm going to buy a pair of jeans that, you know, will last me more than one season um, uh, by choice. Right. And, and also by durability. I think we're starting to re see that reflect a little bit more. I think that's really encouraging. Um, you know, I, I think we're seeing things like veganism and, and, and that sort of breakthrough away from sort of a bit more of a fringe to, well, you know, I don't need necessarily need or want to be a vegan, but it's, it's, it's more available and accessible and in many ways acceptable culturally to eat way less meat than I used to. Um, I, I do th feel like that's a bit of a change and that's really encouraging. Yeah, and I think I've been trying to think of you know other things that are sort of table stakes. And by the way, I like if if no one knows what table stakes means, it just means because in poker you have to put like a certain amount of money down to play the game. So just in case anyone's like, what is table stakes? Um, yeah, I, I was just trying to think about other stuff that might be table stakes now that like it, it didn't used to be. And and certainly the other thing that's obviously happened this year, and it's, you know, I think some brands are just approaching this incredibly cynically, but other brands are, are sort of doing more thoughtful things about it, is that the Black Lives Matter movement and the whole discussion about race in America and beyond America has 
has caused a lot of brands to rethink the way that they advertise and like even it's such a weird and sort of um yeah like a slightly cynical thing but you know an ad that you would produce in 2005 or whatever might have just a purely white family and there's no person of color in anywhere in the shot and then you know gradually gradually there's been more representation which is great but it's also just sort of also it's kind of like a cynical thing where if pepsi wants to do an ad they go like okay well we've got the quota now we've got the token black person etc and and so that sort of table stakes thing is like of course it just cuts both ways i guess is what i'm trying to get to in that like there's an outward um sort of presentation that companies need to make and then there's like the tr the true you know being true to what actually the consumer really wants which is to be thoughtful about diversity or to be thoughtful about um sustainability and so i'm i just i guess i i'm really curious to see what really plays out and i guess the environment that we're in as well is interesting because we've gone through four years where the trump administration has tried to effectively almost dismantle the epa um and now we're in a an incoming blue administration which is very likely to want to rebuild and reinforce and bring in a lot more environmental protections and also probably do much more kind of serious things towards you know, something like a Green New Deal, although you're probably not allowed to call it that, something else. Um, and so in if you're a brand in this situation, like on the one hand, maybe it's, you know, a lot easier to sort of talk and, and walk the sustainability walk because you're sort of in an environment where the administration is going to be encouraging that. On the other hand, um, it may, you know, encourage companies to do you know, maybe less because they feel like, oh, okay, I no longer as a company have to you know, do all the sustainability stuff because the government's now got it, you know, and I'm, I'm not sort of on my own over here. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I certainly, I, I certainly agree with what you're saying, Michael, in, in that I think people are sort of are starting to go beyond the perception that sustainability is just not using a plastic bag, but more like, oh, okay, let's look at supply chains. Let's look at sourcing. Let's look at, um, you know, how we're using resources, et cetera. And, and that, that takes time, I guess, that sophisticated understanding. And maybe this year has allowed us some time to do that. I, I think also, you know, certainly it is, it's interesting as a consumer when some of these bits of progress got, get rolled back. You know, if you get delivery from somewhere and they used to use reusable bags, like, like Fresh Direct actually went through just a really weird sort of situation where they were using reusable bags you would send them back and then they stopped it because of covid and so they kept on sending people these like not reusable bags but not actually reusing them which is insane <laughs> and uh but i mean you could sort of see why right because someone said somewhere i said oh we might be spreading covid if we accept this containers back and you know so um i don't know so i think as a consumer you've been sort of front row seats to these sort of changes as well and start to be conscious about that so um so i don't know what my conclusion is but i i think it it certainly is something that like yeah I, in a built-up um probably uh urban area i guess like su sustainability is probably table stakes now i don't know how that affects like the rest of the country and suburbia and and everything i don't know if people's mindsets are the same what, what do you think, Kaina? Um, this is a very interesting, um, like there's a synergy happening because yesterday I had spoken on an agricultural trends panel 
for the Future Farmers of America conference. And it was Tyson, Tyson Foods, General Mills, and Farm One on the panel. And so they were all very three different perspectives. And they were agreeing with the same thing. And they they were seeing it differently though. They were they were saying that before that, you know, the the two other panelists had been at General Mills and Tyson for over 25 years. And previously, the sustainability office was its own separate office. And now everyone has a KPI related to sustainability. And if you look at agricultural programs at universities, every single student has a class on sustainability. So we're starting to see that conversation happen in, in all different levels. So I do think that it's just, it, there's, a, there's a momentum that's been built and we're on this roller coaster now. Cool. Then, well, you, mate, can we say like we're on the train instead of it? I guess it will be a roller coaster. That's why it's unfortunately accurate. You know. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, I I think the thing that I I I think the challenge for the industry is that we look at large we look to large brands like the General Mills and others because they're able to really affect scale, right? Because they're so big, um, but very rarely are they going to be the ones that are innovating and pushing, right? So if you talk to anybody in the sustainability field or any smaller business startup or what have you, where that's core and central to their brand and to their business, they're going to be pulling their hair out and saying, you know, giving the Nancy Pelosi clap to General Mills and others and say, welcome to the party, right? We've been at this for ages, you know, and you're finally on board and all of a sudden you've had this come to Jesus moment. My point with all of this is that um, I, I think the challenge here is to make sure that smaller brands, startups that are pushing on some of these more innovative areas are given the room and the support that they need in the food system to be able to, um, if not succeed and flourish, I mean, I'm not talking about handouts, I'm talking about removing competitive barriers and some of these others. And of course, that's a much larger conversation to be had. But the point being that companies like ours, companies that don't have the legacy of uh, General Mills and others and sort of the market position are the ones that are going to be pushing to affect change more than more than not. And then at some point it becomes much more mainstream and companies like General Mills pick up on that. And that's OK. That's just part of the system. Um, so, you know, the role for smaller businesses, uh, innovators within the food system can't be more important than than they are now, I think especially on these types of topics. Right. It, it, the, the scene that's coming to mind is in Titanic when they were trying to turn the cruise ship. It's like it's so much harder for a larger organization to, to <laughs> move the cruise ship, whereas a small boat could move faster. <laughs> so the question you have to ask yourself is, who are you on the Titanic? <laughs> cool. All right, let's talk about relocalization and the trend towards buying local. And I think this is similar to the sustainability trend where it's not just about food, it's about supporting local businesses, especially businesses of color and minority groups. What do you think about this trend and how that's going to impact the way that we consume food this year? 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a interesting thing that's happened. You know, I was reading a comment, um, I think from a spokesperson from Unilever who was saying, Hey, it's crazy that we didn't do this already. It's crazy that we were sourcing food from the other side of the world when we could have got it right here where we actually do our production. And I think like that kind of reevaluation, you know, whether it's prompted by COVID or not, you know, it's, it's just good. It's just good business. Um, and certainly, you know, as people have pointed out, like when sort of national or global supply chain somewhat broke down people did start to re-examine food from their local farmers and and rebond with them and, and that's been awesome I, i've certainly heard a lot of really positive stories about local farms being able to you know re-engage their local community um it's I, I guess it's really unpredictable to see what happens when we come out of this you know if you if you had a business that happened to be larger pre-covid and was slimmed down during covid and was more local are you going to forego that again to be a large business or you know make more money or you're going to stick with this local thing i think uh, it remains to be seen but i'm i'm just generally like really happy about it in terms of it's encouraging consumers to to rethink things and and look locally and and I'm really encouraged as well by it's not quite the same trend, but it's the the stories that certainly a lot of my friends um, talk about where, you know, they do order from their local restaurants. They order delivery because they know that money is going directly to them. They avoid platforms like Grubhub, Seamless, DoorDash, whatever, and go directly to the restaurant. They make sure they tip generously to the restaurant um, because they're actually trying to support it as a business. And so that kind of relocalization as well, I think is awesome. Um, and hopefully it's, it's actually helped a few businesses stay alive, you know? So, so I think it's good. I, I, I think it also just remains to be seen, you know, what happens next. So a few weeks ago, uh, Rob, we had a conversation where you brought up gold belly. Um, which thanks for that. Cause I spent a couple hours in that hole and uh, that was the opposite of relocalization. <laughs> Well, yeah, so that's that's sort of part of the question, right? It's it's sort of like, well, in some respects, they're talking about taking local and making it available to everybody. And on, on the one hand, I'm like, wow, you know, some of the best ribs I've ever had was in Austin and it's very local. Wouldn't I want to get that? You know, what better way to spend $200 <laughs> yeah. and, and a whole bunch of completely unsustainable uh, things, but, which is, you know, I mean, that's just part of the world we live in today with the internet, right? We're all so connected that you can literally order, you know, I think one of the crazier things that I saw in there was you could order Korean barbecue from a place in Korea. Uh, Whoa. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I'm a little bit torn about that in some ways, because on the one hand, the sort of, you know, the, the food person in me is like, yes, this is amazing. I get local food from the comfort of my own home. But no, this is terrible. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I think it's I think everyone should have a quota, like you're allowed to do it, you know, once a year or something. And that is the like if we were in a, a centralized economy, a Soviet style, you know, system, then you would you would be allowed to order from Singapore once a year. That's okay, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. What's your uh, what's your favorite local local spot? Um, there's this one restaurant in that we would my family would go for gym sum almost every Sunday and we had to give ourselves, we had to ration it because 
you almost got sick of the dim sum after so many weeks in a row. And so there was one month we were like, we're not allowed to, we're, we're not letting ourselves go for the whole month of July. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. Cool. All right. What's next? Health and immunity. I think that there's been a shift in focus about um, just our baseline health um, and using food as a way to protect ourselves from being sick and how do we recover. So I wanted to hear what your thoughts are on this trend towards um, using food as health and for health and immunity. I think what I'm really interested to find out and i don't i have i certainly haven't seen any studies on this but i'm really interested to find out how many americans made significant lifestyle changes during covid to benefit their overall health and immunity i think that like it's really clear if you look at you know lifestyle contributing to morbidity uh or lifestyle factors contributing to morbidity when it comes to covid you know there's a really really strong correlation between diabetes heart disease um you know that kind of thing and covid illness and morbidity and and i think that i i, I just want to i really want to see some great report that comes out in a few months time that's like yeah x percent of americans did you know change their their diet and lifestyle and it probably had this effect the you know the other data that seems to be interesting right now is around vitamin d and it not being 100% clear if that's like a canary, like vitamin D deficiency being a canary in the coal mine for other deficiencies, or if it like specifically is that, that definitely has some effect on your likelihood of a severe or uh, fatal COVID. So um, I, I don't know, there's all that stuff kind of floating around, but definitely it's never been a better time to kind of look after yourself. It's never been a better time to cook healthy foods and eat healthy foods and consider your immunity as something that you can proactively uh, kind of enforce. I think that over the past, I mean, I don't even know how long, but several decades, um, Americans, I would say British people, given my background, certainly living in Japan, I saw no different. I think a lot of people have got into the situation where they believe that their health or their immunity to certain things is something that they have no control over. It's just a purely random thing. Um, and hopefully this year has prompted people to reconsider that and look long term, you know, what I do every day for the next 20 years has a significant impact on my ability to survive dangerous things or to, you know, have a really good quality of life. And, um, so, so yeah, we'll, we'll see if this has a long term impact. I would hope so. And I, I want to see data, you know, as soon as it's available on, on what the impact has been. Yeah, it also seems like, I mean, kind of like sustainability, it's like this moment, you know, this last year or so um, has just made people a lot more aware of it. And I think maybe prior to it a little bit, I mean, I always sort of moving to, a, to, to the US um, in my early 20s, I sort of picked up very quickly on kind of this lifestyle here of, you know, okay, so you get sick, you know, you, you, you get a shot, you get, you know, you can even get an IV of vitamins to get everything you need in there really quickly and, and that type of thing. Um, whereas I think in a lot of parts of the world, you eat your nutrition, right? You eat your, your vitamins, you eat all of this, uh, all of this stuff that we know is supposed to be good for you. Um, and, and is supposed, is supposed to help. Whereas here, maybe there was a bit more of a culture of, of, okay, just pop that pill and you'll be okay. 
uh, or we'll deal with it. So again, you know, a little bit about awareness and that I've, I've definitely found um, through my life when I changed my diet um, pretty dramatically in uh, my early 30s. So I was going down a pretty bad path with what I was eating and the way that I was eating. Um, it took a while for me, uh, it took about six months of just weaning off processed carbs. Um, and, and that was actually pretty difficult to do for the first probably month or so. But after that, completely changed my outlook on, on the relationship of the food that you eat and how you feel and functionally what you're able to do. Um, I was still sort of, you know, very uh, in, in sort of a competitive athlete at that stage. And, and um, it really changed how I was performing. And, and hopefully, you know, maybe there is some aspects of that coming out of the pandemic that, you know, people do feel better. Maybe they're doing smoothies five days a week <laughs> and they're feeling better about what they're it's eating. It's not a long-term solution, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I definitely understand that feeling, Michael, that you were saying, like as a competitive athlete, like as, as an athlete also, you know, you, you feel the difference when you have a nourished meal versus not and your ability to perform. And I think that even now, like Rob, what you were saying about like, you know, what, what we're doing now impacts us 20 years from now. Like I think about that when I'm running, sometimes I really hate running and, but I I'm thinking like, you know, but in 20 years, you're going to thank yourself for this run. <laughs> but I think, yeah, make sure you do. Yeah. I think that this trend, it asks a great question at the end. It, it, you know, what can this food drink lotion supplement, et cetera, do for me? How can it help protect me? Do you think about that just generally in the products that you consume? Like, do you think about like what its impact to protect you is? I mean, I, I think there's two ways of like looking at that as a consumer. I tend to look at it in terms of like whole plant food and I go like, okay, what, what am I cooking today? And am I getting enough of this and that? And I, but I, I never expect to get it from something with a label on it, really. You know, if something personally, if some, if I walk past a, a store and then there's a bunch of things and they say, oh, it'll do this, it'll do that. I, that's not for me, but I, but it certainly is for a lot of consumers. And, and, and I think that the, you know, the holy grail would be that, yes, people get more concerned about this and also the products improve to actually meet their expectations. But I think what we may end up with is just more marketing around it. Like, oh, this has blueberry extract. So there's like 0.1% of one blueberry in this, you know, drink. And that's supposed to give you all of the, you know, uh, cancer avoiding benefits, all of the antioxidant benefits of, of, of eating loads of blueberries every day in your diet. And it's just not the same. And, and that's where I worry this, start, this thing starts to fall apart. You know, marketing doesn't meet reality uh, is my worry. Yeah, that's a really good point. If the label has to tell you, then maybe there's should be some doubt. <laughs> yeah, eat a real thing. And that, you know, a lot of <laughs> I mean, I don't. Yeah, you talk about this for hours, but like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think I know the challenge with, you know, doing something now where you get the benefits of it 20 years from now is uh, you never know. Right. I mean, I could say, well, you know, I it was very active as as a, uh, in my youth, but at 40, 45 now, I have arthritis in both knees. So maybe I shouldn't have run so much, right? So so it's a little bit of, of that, I guess, of, of what you don't know. And what's really interesting, and so this is sort of, you know, part of my journey um, 
you know, coming through my 20s and 30s, just being extremely active, but then hitting this point now in my 40s where I'm like, okay, well, nobody told me the effects of all of that. And nobody told me, you know, how I should manage uh, activity, nutrition, you know, lifestyle, all of that in today's environment, right? So you can look back and say, well, people that, you know, I mean, of course, a lot of people have gone through this in life, but not with the technology that we have now, not with the knowledge that we have now. Um, so how do you do that? How do you uh, take, you know, all of these ideas um, that are kind of in vogue now and based on research now, and that can say, well, this will help you. Well, we don't actually know. Um, but and I'm not saying that that you should embrace it either way or not embrace it. It's just um, it's just where we find ourselves in history. And I, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Those are all really good points. All right. So trend number five, um, we're really in an interesting point in our world. Uh, democratization is definitely a trend that we're going to see in 2021, especially with a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests last year that we saw. There's been a lot of um, choice that people have been making about supporting black owned businesses, minority businesses. Rob or Michael, what do you think about this trend? Well, I think, I mean, if you, if you think about it uh, as an overall thing, it's certainly an aspiration for a lot of people in the country. I think that, you know, certainly um, if you look at the, how would you describe it? Um, you know, white middle-class America, I guess. I, 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 so I know that there are a lot of people who have kind of woken up to this idea of like, oh yeah, okay, actually, if I want to change this system that I think is wrong, I need to be an active participant in reducing inequality. And I can do that as a consumer in some ways. I can do that as someone who donates to causes. I can do that as someone who puts their time towards it. I can do that by voting. Um, and so there are all these, these ways. And certainly the consumer approach of buying from a black owned business or uh, the donation approach of donating to a food bank, for instance, you know, is something that I think a lot more people have thought about this year than than in previous years. And that's fantastic. Obviously, the problem is the need, you know, in terms of food banks, banks has never been greater. You know, there's never been more people um, who are without food. You know, if you look at New York City, the, like the number of people visiting food banks has, has gone up immensely. And so I, I don't again, I don't know what to think about this fully, but I do know that there's a, a generation of people who are now have this on their minds and have this on their minds as something that is an effect of inequality. Um, and that can only be a good thing because I think people can put more resource behind it. I think that if you look at the fundamental sort of structural issues that we're dealing with, you know, donating to a food bank is a great thing to do, but it isn't, you know, it's not the addressing the root cause, you know, the root cause is inequality that's gone back for generations. And so that is something that has to be dealt with through the political system, I think. But again, you know, we're seeing good things there. So it's, again, I always look at these things and go, okay, there's something that's going to happen on the surface. You know, you look at an app like um, Eat Okra, which is an app for finding Black-owned uh, restaurants uh, in your area. Um, and that's an app that I think got, you know, really in a great way, like got a lot of push this year and got, 
you know, got in front of a lot of people and that's awesome. And now that's part of like a lot of people's sort of everyday habits, you know, for like finding places. And I think that's great. And I, so I love seeing innovation like that. Uh, we just bought cookies from Partake, which is a, a black owned business invented, um, invested in by Jay-Z and Rihanna. Uh, it's a, it's a vegan cookie business actually out of New York, which we only realized after we ordered the cookies. Um, but uh, yeah, so there's, there's things like that where there's people getting more publicity and stuff. Um, so I, I mean, I obviously think it's great and I just want it to continue. And I think hopefully that, you know, the more people just build that into their everyday practice, the more it just becomes instinctual. And then, you know, as a consumer, certainly those behaviors become embedded. Um, how long it takes for the political system to, you know, reverse some of these trends that we're trying to fight against, you know, who knows, but, um, but there's good things happening. I, I feel good about it. Michael, what do you think? Yeah, I think very similarly to Rob and, and, you know, again, back to kind of the sustainability thing, I think the, uh, the level of awareness that's happening, um, that the, and the types of conversations that are, that are happening, I think are really healthy. Um, you know, Rob, to your point, it's sort of the political, there's systemic problems that need to be solved. Um, and you know, hopefully there's a path towards that in, in, in a way that's more equitable to everybody. But then there's also cultural things that we can do. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing in the media. That's what we're seeing with new entrepreneurs that are that are trying to do different things. And, you know, part the 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 thing that the objection that maybe people might have resorted to in the past and, and this applies to sustainability as well is, well, it's really hard. It's a hassle, you know, it's, it's so much work. Um, and the good thing is with, uh, with apps like Eat Okra, it's making it as simple as possible for, uh, in our culture, right? So if you think about it, you know, awareness is one thing. Uh, the next thing is then, you know, take the action, right? We're making it as easier as easy as possible now, and pretty soon um, it's going to be hopefully as easy as anything else. I mean, in many places where, for example, where I live and, and probably New York City, I mean, uh, uh, convenience isn't isn't a question, right? You can't make that argument anymore. It's and there are maybe places in the United States where you still could, and and certain places around the world. Um, but for a lot of us that live in cities and, and even in, in the suburbs uh, surrounding cities, that's no longer a problem. So it then becomes a cultural conversation. Um, and, and it's good. You know, it's good. I think it's healthy. And, um, and at the end of the day, listen, you've got more options for delicious food. Uh, I don't see how that's a bad thing. <laughs> Never a bad thing. Never a bad thing. I, what I like about this trend also is that it's revealed what is actually within our realm of control and how much power there is in that. Of course, you know, we can do all of these things like purchase from black owned businesses and it's not going to solve the systemic issues, but at least we have more awareness about what is within our realm of control and, and how much power there is in that. So that's what I'm really excited about this trend. And, you know, the more that we exercise that kind of power, the more change we'll see. Amazing. Yeah. For our listeners that are following along on the articles, we're actually going to transition to the New York Times article. Um, we're going to talk about a trend that we're going to see meal kits from chefs. Traditionally, meal kits have gotten a bad rep for the excess packaging, um, the subscription models. And when the pandemic hit, they actually gained popularity again. And 
so much that we're actually going to start seeing some of these meal kits curated by chefs. Rob, what Rob and Michael, what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, I think I guess what we're finding is the meal kit is like a format, right? And then anyone can participate in that format, you know. Um, and and the natural progression is chefs to do that. I think also what the thing that happened is a lot of restaurants started to sort of do meal kits as well, you know, as a way to um, as a way to make money and you know have an audience during COVID. So this is sort of a natural progression. I think if you if you look now online at the number of meal kit companies, I know Ina, you were looking at some uh, last week, you know, plant based meal kits. There's a lot, right? There's a lot of these now. And I think that once you start to look at them, you know, after you've looked at, you know, you look at one plant-based meal kit delivery company um, and you go, okay, all right, fair enough. Uh, you look at another one, all right, okay, fair enough. After you've looked at four or five, all of which deliver nationally, all of which have, you know, pretty similar sort of meals in the offering, you start to go like, oh, okay, there's not a lot of differentiation here. You know, and so in a in what's already like a crowded marketplace, obviously the barrier to entry is not very high, you know, to set up a meal kit delivery service. I think you could sort of probably pay a consultant a few thousand dollars and they'll just get you ready to go uh, within a couple of months. You know, now it's it's time for differentiation of, and, and exactly as you've had to have with restaurants. If you walk around the East Village, you know, looking for somewhere to eat. Every restaurant is trying to do something different. You know, they're trying to stand out. And that's what we're getting in this this sort of new space where the, the meal kit is like a standard platform. It's time for people to stand out now. I think it's great. I mean, it it obviously a lot of this is coming out of the pandemic and where, where the restaurant industry is coming out of. I think what's really fun is just the expression of creativity, right? That you're seeing from some of the restaurants um, you know, so they're in, in the New York times article, they're <laughs> citing the, uh, $475 roast duck package from 11 Madison park, which, you know, on, on, on its surface, it's standard, is, standard yeah. Tuesday lunchtime, isn't it really, yeah. you know? Yeah. Just so absurd. But, um, but, you know, if you think of that industry again, it's sort of, you know, some of that is about food and particularly, especially for a restaurant like 11 Madison Park, it's about the experience, right? It's they're, they're selling you an experience when you go for a meal there. The food is part of the food is a vehicle for the expression of that that experience. Um, I think it's really fun to see that creativity emerge in in, in these neat meal kits um and you know what what that's all about i guess if it's a question of you know does it stay does it have staying power um uh does it sort of you know replace restaurants in its entirety i mean who knows but i i would hope not i still think restaurants are, are pretty wonderful places and i i really hope that after all after everything with the pandemic they come back in in ways that you know uh, are meaningful in our lives um but again it's about access uh to me and, and creativity and you know hopefully there's a place in it in the home um where where that'll continue i know you, yeah. are, you are you a meal kit person are you a, a subscriber i'm not a meal kit person i'm i subscribe to misfits um market but they're not really a meal kit they're they rescue food that would have otherwise been wasted and then you, it's kind of like a a puzzle that you have to put together every week. I was like, all right, what am I going to do with all this? 
And it ends up, you know, and I, I do have to supplement some ingredients from the grocery store just to make sure that it ends up being a full meal, but it's more of like a, it's a puzzle rather than a complete meal. And I don't know if I would ever buy a meal kit. I'm, there's just the, the idea of like having to just work with what I have is more enticing to me with the Misfits market. And I don't know, it just, it's, it's not, it doesn't feel as enticing to me as, um, you know, doing all of the research in the other meal kits and plant-based delivery services. It, it didn't, it didn't grab me then. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, obviously there's meal kits and then there's meal kits. There's the EMP one, you know, which is a, I'm sure a, a fantastic meal and amazing ingredients and very, very, very carefully prepared and, and probably as much fun to sort of put together as it is to eat it. And then I think there's the other end of the scale where it's basically a TV dinner, right? Like that you're kind of sliding into your smart oven, you know, that supposedly cooks it better than you, you could. Um, I, I think ideally there's a space for everything. Certainly I'm sort of pretty much on, on, on the same page as, as you, I know, like I, the idea of a traditional meal kit is not something that really appeals to me at all. I don't need the expertise, I can buy the ingredient. I'm I'm really worried about the packaging implications of most of these meal kits. Um, but I do think there's a space for something where, you know, it's components of, you know, a salad or it's, it's some easy way to like bring together some portioned ingredients. Some of them are semi-prepared. I, I think the thing that's, I guess, most exciting for me is if there's, and you can sort of get this by buying jars of these types of things but if there are some elements in there that would normally take a long time to prepare um this isn't a good example but like maybe a, a pickle a fermented item in there right that you know you're not going to bother doing yourself or something if there's a few items in there in one recipe that you could kind of bring together in easy in an easy way i'd quite like that um but there i i'm guessing i'm kind of in a little bit of a niche there wanting something you know so specific so so we'll see, but I, it's, I, I think it's interesting to have this as a sort of platform. It's, it's like a standard thing now where you don't need to explain to a consumer what a meal kit is. Like they know that now. So now we can experiment and do, do new things. And, that, and that's a cool place to be. Yeah, good point. Our last trend that we're gonna talk through is labels worth reading. So of course, there are um, there's government required information that has to be on every single food label, but there's also other things that we're starting to see, like companies showing that they're uh, a minority group, that this company is a minority group, and they'll put that on the label, or the environmental footprint of the product. What do you think about this trend and the way that labels are evolving? I think it's completely predictable and natural and good and this is exactly what's happening you know like it's it's not it's not even like a prediction it's just like this is already happening um and certainly you know for us as a company i think when you buy from us it's very very clear what we stand for and what we do and it's sort of um you know we've been thinking about how that message comes across you know delivery on same day of harvest um, obviously pesticide free, kind of nasty free, uh, New York city only, we only deliver locally, this kind of stuff. So 
that that is like so intrinsic to what we do that it's almost like i don't even know if it's on the label anymore it's, it's just sort of like it's it just is um and i i think that this is just totally natural you know people want stuff like this people expect this people are suspicious of brands that do not have this i think that you what what you're going to see as a a big effect of this is more and more of big brands like Unilever, Procter & Gamble, PepsiCo, trying to tap into that kind of authentic, like made here by real people kind of thing. And it's really hard for them to do that. They can do that in some ways by investing in, you know, young companies um, and sort of buying that. Uh, they can try to foster some of that by themselves. Um, you know, but it's really, really hard. And so authenticity and sort of honesty in that label is, is tough to get. And it's only becoming more and more important. Yeah, there's the, um, <laughs> I don't know, every time I think of labels, I think of uh, Dr. Brana's soap and their labels, because I think they've hit the high point of how much information you can put on a label. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And um, there, there's, there is that sort of sense. I mean, it's not just about awareness, but also this reinforcing nature, right? I think some people in the marketing industry call it permission, right? It's sort of, you know, I, it's not necessarily the reason why I buy it, but um, buy this product, let's call, let's say sustainability, or that it was uh, produced by a company that's owned by women or people of color, but it's so, you know, every time I eat it, it, it sort of makes me feel like I'm doing a good thing. Or every time I choose that product, it makes me feel like I'm doing a good thing. Um, and, you know, you could argue as a purist, well, then, you know, that's that's kind of phony. But then on the other end of things, hey, it worked, right? That's human nature to a degree. Um, so I, it's good. It's great. Yeah. I, oh, so I, I just it just made me think. I'll, to interrupt you, Ina, but like it made me think, you know, if we look at this list of things that we've been talking about in a way, you know, sustainability, relocalization, health and immunity, democratization, uh, labels worth reading. You know, I, I think the, the bigger trend that's very obvious to me is just more and more burden placed on the consumer to like make the right ethical choice, like every time you buy a thing. And, and I guess, you know, if you think about the market, my my mental association with like 80s marketing, which is when I was growing up, was like, it was all about just pleasure. It was like, okay, you're going to drink this Pepsi and it's going to, you know, the condensation is going to like drift down you and you're going to feel amazing. And it's just like, it's just pure joy, pleasure, right? Whereas now what we're really talking about these trends is like as a consumer, you're like walking down the virtual aisle and going like, oh, is it better to support, you know, a women owned business or is it better to eat a vegan thing? And like, and as a consumer being forced to make that an ethical choice every time you buy something. And, and that's hard. I mean, that's a lot of expectation to put on people, but also I think it, it's sort of, uh, there's a convenience to that in that people think, oh, if I buy it the right toilet paper, then maybe I don't even need to worry about my political habits or whether I donate to a charity or anything like that because I bought the right toilet paper. And I, you know, I went through the mental anguish of deciding for 45 minutes which toilet paper to buy. So that is my decision for the day. I am mentally exhausted. You know, I'm done. And I, I, I do think there's a genuine risk of that. And, and I think that if... If you look at the actual impact you're able to make as a consumer, like, yes, you can have impact, but it's not as much as, 
you know, maybe donating $100 specifically to, you know, a cause or going and, you know, spending your day uh, helping a cause or voting differently. It's not as big as that. And so we've, we've got to find some way of like weighing the, you know, effectiveness of these things. I'm, I'm quite into the whole effective altruism movement of, of like, you know, trying to make sure if you donate a dollar to your charity, that it's the most effective way that dollar can be spent. And so I, I'm just trying to, you know, when I look at some of these consumer choices, I think, oh, okay. Are we, like, are we spending our time agonizing about the right things eventually? You know, that's my concern. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. I think, I think it's about choice. I think it's about choice and awareness. And, um, you know, I think that, that there's also a big generational aspect to it, you know, to expect like, you know, our parents necessarily to, you know, having spent whatever it is, 60, 70, 80 years of their life living a certain way. And then, you know, for us to be wagging their finger, our fingers at them saying, you shouldn't choose, you know, this terrible whatever that you just bought at the Safeway, I mean, is 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 a bit sort of, uh, I don't know, that doesn't sit well with me. I think it's unrealistic and unfair. Um, but we are, at, it does feel like we are at this sort of cusp of, of, of a, a pretty big generational shift in how we're thinking about this, our relationship with brands and what's important. Um, but yeah, and to your point, Rob, about um, advertising uh, in the past, the minute you said that, the image I had in my head was, um, there was a cigarette brand called Virginia Slims. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they, uh, uh, they used to sponsor uh, the tennis. women's tennis. Yeah, and yeah. that never made sense to me. <laughs> how how does a cigarette brand sort of associate with a competitive uh, the competitive sport? Anyway, yeah, cigarettes and sports have a long history. I mean, I you know Formula One in the UK was always like John Player Special, which was this. I mean, I don't think that brand. Benson and Hedges years. did a lot Benson of that. And Hedges, yeah. right? Like all of that, and and. You know, it, it all again. I uh, maybe I'm overthinking this, but it, it it makes me think about the political situation as well. Because you like, I think if you look at a lot of politics, right on the left, there's a lot of burden on the person to like do the right thing. You know, there's people like pushing, like effectively shaming some portion of the American public. You know, and I think there's this sort of alternative, which is to go like, no, you know what? I'm going to have the burger. I'm going to have the coke. And, and I'm allowed to because, you know, this company is telling me I've had it all my life. Like, why should I feel bad for like having a Coke, you know? And I, I have a lot of sympathy for that. Like, you know, people, especially this year, right, with the comfort eating or whatever, um, you know, they deserve that moment maybe. So I don't know. I know. I feel like you've been on the verge of saying something for about five minutes. So I'm trying. I'm trying to form a thought, but I just feel overwhelmed <laughs> because it's really, it really is like this balance or this. There's a tension between, oh, I I have a lot of power as a consumer, but then also, does everything have to have so much meaning? And like, does every decision right. have so much attached to it? Can I just have? Can I just be present in the one decision and just enjoy it? And so how do you balance, you know, your, your whole life in like all of the micro decisions that you're making, like 
all of the decisions that I made this morning. Like, you know, am I going to buy bread from this from this stall at the Union Square Farmers Market or this stall? And like, did I ask all the questions about like, is it aligned with my values? And I'm like, can I just have a loaf of bread? Yeah. <laughs> Pringles yeah. are delicious. Well, it's also we're having a very narrow. <laughs> I love how Michael is sponsored by Pringles and the podcast isn't, you know. I'm not, but I should be. Um, the, but it, we're, we're having a pretty narrow sort of conversation too, socioeconomically. I mean, it, you know, there's a whole thread about the amount of privilege that you could have to eat clean, right? I mean, uh, and I, I'm curious kind of what you guys think about that. Um, the point being that, you know, there, there are those that are less fortunate in more difficult economic situations, the poor, they're, you know, what have you. And there's long been an argument that, you know, this eating clean stuff is really expensive. And basically it's it's coming from a place elitist. of privilege. Yeah, yeah it's very yeah. elitist. What do you guys think of that? Oh, I have a lot of thoughts on this because I was just talking about this with my partner, Michael, over the weekend. So. When I was a kid growing up, we, I, we were really frugal, we, modest living when we were growing up. And my mom would clean the floors with old t-shirts that we grew out of or that had a hole in it or something like that. And this year, what I'm trying to do in 2021, I'm like, okay, let me see how long I can go without a product and then to really assess how much I need it. And so, you know, 10 days ago, I ran out of paper towels and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna try to figure out what I can do with not buying paper towels. And I ended up going back to what I did as a kid. You know, I cut up an old t-shirt that, you know, was really pilly and was, I could not wear it anymore. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do it again. And it, it was a moment for me. I was like, this is something that I had shame for as a kid because I associate it with not having enough money. And now it all came back full circle. So Mike and I were having this conversation about who is sustainability for? And is it really for the entire world because climate change is something that's happening over the entire world or is it for people in higher economic i, I don't have the answer but i'm still using an old t-shirt for my paper towels it's <laughs> <laughs> a nice story <laughs> yeah i no i i mean i don't know you it's you're completely right like we have a uh well some of us have a luxury of choice about choosing the more eco-friendly laundry detergent and then Someone else is literally trying to get enough to wash one load of laundry and that's it. And, and, and if you, you know, if you go to the other side of things, it's like one of the problems with plastic waste in Southeast Asia is large companies offering product in sachets because that's literally the only way people can afford it. If they want to wash their clothes, they can't afford a big, you know, tub um of tablets or whatever and and so that plastic is less like to be recycled and so yeah it impacts everything i i mean i guess personally as a consumer when i come across that kind of thing or personally as an individual when i come across that kind of thing i just i kind of go like okay well what what do i have the patience for what am i able to do is it worth me worrying about this for half an hour or would it be better if i'm going to donate money this month you know, to, to do that instead and, and that being, you know, much more impactful. But yeah, I think it's it, that it's important to just always have that caveat, I guess, on every conversation that we have like this, which is like, yeah, of course, it's a privilege to have the choice, you know, it's a privilege to be able to make that decision. And yeah, I think that's important. So from all of the trends that we talked through, 
Is there anything that you're thinking is going to impact or reinforces or changes what we're doing at Farm One? I think we're in the middle of a lot of these, you know, we're in the middle of a lot of these, hopefully not flavor fatigue because we're all about flavor and unusual flavors and everything. So hopefully that's one that is just not happening or it's just happening, but it doesn't affect us. Um, you know, sustainability is something we talk about every day. You know, we make choices every day. I know and I were talking literally this morning about the cap on a bottle of a thing that we're going to give out as a sample and whether what we should do with the cap and, um, you know, all of these, all of these trends, like relocalization, you know, yeah, I could talk about any of them, but, but I think that, you know, for us as a company firmly, of course, we're trying to respond to what people actually want, but also trying to do things, you know, because we have power as a company to, to maybe make, have a bigger impact than any given individual. So, um, so yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that we're really curious as a company as to how these trends play out and what the end of 2021 looks like. And, and I'm sure a list like this will look quite different, you know, in 12 months time. So I'm really curious as to see, to see what happens. Well, I also think as a business, let's not lose sight of the fact that it gives us a competitive advantage um, in, in some ways to embrace this, to make this part of what we do, the products that we are selling and the way in which we're doing it. And, um, you know, there's certainly, I mean, that's, what the trends are reinforcing are that there's a market for it, um, or there appears to be, well, I should say there's an audience for it. Um, what we're learning now is that there appears to be a market for it. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, I guess it'll be interesting, maybe not next year, but in, in the years to come, um, you know, does the measure will be, is this mainstream? Or, you know, are we sort of, you know, on the fringes of it or, you know, are we um, are, are we just pushing on something that will always stay sort of, you know, quote unquote niche um, or does this just become the way of the world? Yeah, well, we'll see. <laughs> thank you both. This was such a great chat for our listeners. If there was any trend or anything that you heard that um, is resonating with you, feel free to let us know in the comments. Be sure to like and subscribe to this video and we will see you all next week. Thanks everyone. Thanks everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.